The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, and welcome to today's Barron's Live. I'm Abby Schultz, a senior writer at Barron's Penta. And today I'm joined by Melissa Berman, who is founding president and CEO of Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, and Olga Tarasov, who is director knowledge development at RPA. And together we're gonna talk about the state of philanthropy and RPA's recent development of what they call operating archetypes, which are models that philanthropists can use as guideposts for being more effective. Welcome, Melissa and Olga. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you. We're really delighted to be here. Thank you for having us. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone who is tuning in that you can write in questions for our guests, and I'll try to get to them before our time's up. So philanthropy, of course, comes in lots of different forms. It's delivered in lots of different ways. The potential outsized influence of mega donors. Recently, it has been challenged. Um, that's been an issue that's kind of come up a lot um, among uh, people who are questioning questioning philanthropy and questioning the role of mega donors, for instance. And just this week, the University of Indiana published their annual report. It's um, through the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. And they found that 5% of all giving last year in 2021, or about $15 billion, could be attributed to those who gave $450 million or more. So presumably billionaires, given that large amount. Um, but And that's not a huge percentage of total giving, 5%, but it's not insignificant. So Melissa, just to start with you, could, could you just give us a sense of what your views are on billionaire philanthropy? And is this something we should be concerned about? Sure. So, you know, billionaires have had an outsized influence in philanthropy for many, many centuries, if not millennia, going back to the times of the Greeks and the Romans, right? Mm -hmm. um, and my guess is that the Indiana University estimate of that 5% is could be attributed to billionaires is a pretty low number, considering how many billionaires use other forms of giving, including donor-advised funds. And the kind of influence that billionaires can have is really pretty clearly illustrated in this morning's news from the Supreme Court, which uh, overturned Roe v. Wade. And that uh, movement toward a much more conservative kind of judicial approach uh, goes back to philanthropy started by some billionaires way back in the 70s and 80s. Very patient, long-term giving, uh, led initially by the Olin Foundation and the Scaife Foundation, um, that uh, started organizations like the Federalist Society. And if you look at the who belongs to the Federalist Society, uh, currently you'll see a lot of today's Supreme Court judges as part of that conservative, uh, traditional-leaning. Um, uh, narrow interpretation of the Constitution, a uh, school of thought. So that's an example of a, a really major victory that philanthropists had 
in uh, changing not just policy but law. Um, it takes a lot of time and a lot of patience, but it's a, it's a very powerful example. Right. I guess a question, though, is, is, is that something as a society that we should be concerned about, that, that uh, mm. um, you know, that, that yeah. billionaires could have so much say and have so much influence over yeah. time? So we have a lot of billionaire power on both the left and the right in the United States. Mm. And uh, we have, as a country, traditionally felt that philanthropy is voluntary and as long as it's operating in some with some pretty very very broad parameters philanthropy is free to weigh in on policy issues and perspectives and if we don't like that and we don't like the results of that there are a couple things we can do and they're very different in approach though one is to say well we want to reduce the power of billionaires by reducing the amount of money that billionaires have and so we're going to tax them mm -hmm. at a much higher rate and that will reduce their power on the philanthropic side right right so right. that's one approach right mm -hmm. the second approach would be to say we're going to put some limits on what philanthropy can do in the policy arena and that one sounds kind of simple but in reality it's pretty complicated because i my opinion is that it would get politicized really quickly so you can imagine that in uh, the trump administration uh, efforts to expand rights for trans youth would be prohibited in philanthropy and that in the biden administration efforts to um uh, support uh, policies that encourage coal mining might be prohibited. And that could really ricochet around and create a lot of unintended consequences. So it would be a very long, careful process to figure out who's going to regulate it and how are we going to define the terms if we say that philanthropy shouldn't be so involved in policy. Right. Um, have there been efforts to do that? Not. There have been efforts to increase transparency, which is a different matter altogether and um, and and makes a lot more sense. Mm. So that would mean that there should be more transparency about who puts money into certain kinds of organizations. Um, right. On the other hand, anonymous giving is something that's deeply valued by many Americans, regardless of their level of wealth, often as part of their religious creed. Mm -hmm. And so that's a hard thing also, right? Yeah, no simple solution. <laughs> um, well, you mentioned transparency, and I know that, um, you know, that, that that is often, yes, as you said, a criticism that's raised about philanthropy that that we don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and and also the origins of wealth and um, is something that has been questioned a bit. You know, like where where does the wealth come from, and whether uh -huh. or not that should be something that yep. you know we, we consider. And um, I, when I spoke with Olga, which was not that long ago for a story that I did about the operating archetypes that we're going to be talking about later, um, Olga, you had mentioned then that uh, that that you've seen philanthropists and foundations kind of taking these concerns more seriously more recently than in the past. And I was wondering if you could maybe 
tell us a little bit about that? Of course. Well, maybe first I'd like to add a little bit to what Melissa said. Um, you know, I think we should always be concerned about the use of private private money for public good. Um, and there should be critique and uh, at least public oversight of philanthropy uh, in terms of holding our feet to the fire and holding us accountable. However, I just want to say that uh, the question of mega donors, while uh, is very important and significant, uh, especially vis-a-vis -vis policy changes and influence or shadow influence that we might not know about. I want to say that the tapestry of global philanthropy is much more diverse and richer than mega donors. There are smaller place-based philanthropies that play a very significant role and uh, transform communities uh, that are adversely affected by various things that range from climate change to cyclical poverty. So I, I, I also want to caution uh, the general public against conflating mega donors and philanthropy generally, um, because I think it does all of us a disservice uh, to some extent. Um, you know, and about transparency, a few days ago, uh, days ago, years ago, in the before times, before COVID, mm. we did publish a fairly in-depth report um, exploring questions of transparency, accountability, and legitimacy, or social compact, as we call it. And again, while some critique of philanthropy is valid and is healthy, uh, we do have to recognize that uh, philanthropy has made giant leaps and how it approaches questions of transparency, accountability, legitimacy, and how it views the power dynamic of relationships between funders and grantees and frontline communities that they ultimately support. Um, from our research and anecdotal evidence and client work, we do see that philanthropies are recognizing importance of becoming more transparent and communicating with the public, not just in telling their stories and of impact and success, but truly and organically communicating with the world about their work. Um, there are growing conversations around trust, participatory grant making, um, and including the voices and viewpoints of effective affected communities and those closest to the issues and challenges. Um, and more importantly, there's a lot more candor and space for candor uh, in acknowledging philanthropist complicity in some of the challenges that persist today and acknowledgement of mistakes and failures past and present. Um, you know, to me, it is a journey and different philanthropies around the world are different junctures on this journey. Um, but more and more philanthropies are recognizing and acting on the importance of honoring uh, what we call their social compact with society. We can see that uh, with Mackenzie Scott's radically flexible giving, the growing trust-based philanthropy movement, not just in the United States, but globally, um, the growing conversations around equity and resource justice. Um, many foundations are not just building uh, robust, but ad hoc or occasional two-way communication channels with grantees and communities, but are really establishing deep listening mechanisms and ensuring that they honor and incorporate the wisdom, knowledge, um, and expertise of communities in shaping programs, evaluation metrics, other interventions. Um, 
I would also note the growing equitable evaluation practice uh, worldwide. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, in my observation, uh, even in cultures and regions where the conversations are not at the level of those in the United States, there is a lot more introspection within philanthropic organization about what power means, what accountability is, and what legitimacy is. Um, and yes, some of the conversations can get a little defensive. You know, why are we being criticized when we're trying to do good? Um, but even initially defensive conversations usually lead to meaningful and introspective examination of, you know, money is power. What does that mean? How uh, can philanthropy share and shift power? And what does it mean to walk the walk and to do better and to be better as philanthropy? Um, you know, and so I, I have been in and around the world of philanthropy for more than 20 years, and I am privileged to be a part of some of these conversations, and I couldn't imagine these conversations even a few years back in some environments. Um, and as I said, it's a journey, but I think uh, you know, this is a crucial starting point, and I think changes and shifts are happening. That's that's super interesting. Um, and well, and you mentioned Mackenzie Scott, and I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about that for a minute. Mackenzie Scott, of course, is the former wife of of Jeff Bezos, and and she has given quite a bit to philanthropy, often surprising organizations with with very large gifts um, and a type of I think you called it. Radical, what did you call it? Radically flexible, Radically no strings flexible. attached. <laughs> right, yeah. right, which which is really interesting and, and an approach that uh, I know a lot of um, a lot of people do advocate for. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit. I, I, I'm, I'm curious whether or not Mackenzie Scott's giving is having an impact on other philanthropists and other organizations, you know, big and small. Um, Melissa, do you want to take this or do you want me to take first crack at the answer? <laughs> you you go first, Olga. Perfect. Um, so I think inevitably it is having effect. I'm not sure if we can have quantifiable mathematical measurements of how Mackenzie Scott's money has led others to give uh, how many and how much. Um, but it is a major point of conversation globally. Hmm. And it is a stop and think moment for philanthropies everywhere. Um, and, you know, we uh, as RPA did notice and speak extensively about in the beginning of COVID, a lot of philanthropies globally really switching to flexible uh, giving, grant making, and uh, even abandoning or loosening significantly um, reporting requirements. So they, these things were underway prior to Mackenzie uh, coming in, but she, of course, uh, took it a hundred steps further. And I think that inevitably um, she is influencing the conversation and inevitably uh, shifts uh, in norms and how people give. Um, and I think, you know, it's a powerful example and uh, philanthropists will follow and a lot of foundations already are engaging in something similar. Interesting. Melissa, did you have a you know, thought on that? Sure. I'd, I'd like to add that one of the things that Mackenzie Scott did, uh, along with her husband, Dan Jewett, did in uh, June of 2021, so just over a year ago, was may, they made well over 
uh, $150 million of grants to organizations like Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, which was lucky enough to be included in this group of uh, 24 organizations, that help uh, philanthropists achieve their goals in the world and that are also part of the movement of helping to get more money into philanthropy, to get more money toward the most important causes, and to do it in ways that support the nonprofits and the community leaders who are most close to the problems. So that's another way that she is really uh, tilting the table in philanthropy. Really trying to that, yeah. support the infrastructure yeah. of Support the infrastructure. Support the infrastructure that can help get a lot more philanthropy off the sidelines and mm -hmm. out into communities. And to right. build the knowledge and tools around that as well, I would add. And I would say, you know, there's a lot of dialogues and roundtables here in Europe that use her actions as an example to inspire other wealth holders to do the same. Yeah, actually, that reminds me of a, a, another question, or makes me think of another question I had, which is that. Um, uh, this question of getting money off the sidelines, um, even though uh, there, I, I think philanthropy, well, overall philanthropy was pretty steady last year. Um, there, is a, there is a concern that there's too much money on the sidelines from, from wealthy individuals um, and families, as well as you know others, uh, money sitting in donor advice funds gets criticized. I'm just curious mm -hmm. you know, how big an issue this is and and yeah, yeah, there are other ways of underway yeah. to try to try to move the, well, you know, move the needle. You know, good question, Abby. I mean, I um, I certainly understand the frustration of people who look at how much wealth there is and and how little um, of that seems to be flowing into philanthropy. Um, I may be optimistic on that issue. For one thing, while I'm while I recognize that donor advised funds don't maybe have uh, the transparency that we might want or that some people might want, they have helped move a lot of money off the sidelines. Uh, Fidelity Charitable put uh, something like $9 billion of philanthropy out last year. Um, donor advised funds make it easy for people to get off the sidelines and get money out the door. Um, I think that inspirational examples like Mackenzie Scott and how rapidly she's giving money away are helping to get money off the sidelines, along with initiatives like the giving pledge that uh, Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett started. We talked to many people, and even though they may not be at uh, the level of wealth that the giving pledge uh, members have, um, or are reluctant to step forward and make a public commitment that way, they are very well aware of this idea that uh, many wealthy people could do a whole lot more for philanthropy. So I think that and, and efforts of people like Mackenzie Scott and Dan Jewett to strengthen uh, organizations that share knowledge and ideas um, with donors to help them get the level of comfort they need to put their trust in what looks like a very bizarre system to them sometimes. Those are all encouraging signs to me. Right. I share Melissa's optimism, and I think part of it is, uh, you know, the lack of confidence. And I think that the more knowledge uh, the, 
uh, peer learning cohorts and conversations we create and examples we provide, um, the more money gets off the sidelines and into the main pot. And we see that with a lot of things, including, for example, interventions around uh, the war in Ukraine right now, that a lot of money is coming in, a lot of money is reawakening, and people are mobilizing. We saw the same with refugees flowing out of Afghanistan and the assistance that was given to them and the kind of public-private partnerships and unexpected sources of money that came in to help, including crowdsourcing and other such things. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I want to now talk a little bit more about the kind of things that you do at, at RPA and, and, and in particular the operating archetypes, which is um, a well it's a it, these are models that philanthropists can follow for achieving their goals and and it was a, a an idea or i guess concepts that you you came up with after you know based on years of research and you recently put out a paper on this and um olga i was wondering if you could maybe walk us through this a little bit what are these operating archetypes and and why did you come up with them as metaphors for how giving can be organized by donors Sure, happy to. Um, so maybe uh, I'll, I'll briefly take a few steps back uh, to contextualize the origin of the archetype work. Um, and this work stems from our Theory of the Foundation initiative, which was launched almost a decade ago, um, and eventually, or quickly rather, evolved into a robust and active learning collaborative a community of peers. Uh, including at any point dozens uh, of uh, leading foundations worldwide. Uh, I think at this point we have over a hundred graduates of our learning collaborative. Um, and the aim of the initiative was to explore, um, create common language and concepts and create tools um, around foundations as institutions, not just sources of grants and money uh, and external activities. Um, and, and there's a, as a result, to help foundations effectively align their resources for the impact they envisioned. And when um, Melissa <laughs> launched uh, this initiative, along with other colleagues at RPA, this body of work was entirely absent or almost entirely absent. And so as we were developing operating archetypes as part of the frameworks and tools envisioned uh, in this work, um, under the theory of the foundations. Uh, we worked with the members of the learning collaboratives and um, many, many hundreds of foundations and uh, dozens of research partners and thought partners around the world. We continue to notice that the challenges and shifting norms uh, within and around the world of philanthropy uh, continue to cause funders to grapple with how they can be more effective. Uh, more equitable and create more meaningful and lasting change. Um, and of course, this was a lot more noticeable in the past two plus years. As the world collectively, including philanthropy, has faced the pandemic and the socioeconomic inequities it brought to the surface and the scary existential challenges of climate change and democratic backsliding and societal polarization. Um, and of course, controversies around the legitimacy and power of philanthropy. Um, and so again, what became increasingly apparent to us is that this moment in time was and is calling on funders to review and crystallize not only what they seek to accomplish and the kind of change they want to see and bring uh, about, but also how they engage with 
talent, expertise, grantees, partners, and communities to create that change. And so we developed the operating archetypes, not just as a tool for analysis, but also a tool for action uh, to help funders uh, gain greater clarity around what they seek to achieve, how they use their resources and capacities um, to get there and to implement ultimately their vision and strategies. Um, and operating archetypes as a tool, these metaphorical representations can help funders not only better understand their current state and their aspirational state, but most importantly, what is needed to bridge the two and to achieve the uh, aspirational state, how to better align existing resources and skills and approaches, identify and map gaps in internal capacities, and really allow for thoughtful strategic changes and pivots organizationally, whether it's scaling up, spending down, in increasing pro number of programs or cutting programs down, uh, and to address issues of equity and inclusion, which have come into sharper focus. And so these metaphorical representations or models, as you said, offer philanthropies a very useful instantaneous recognition of themselves and a useful mirror for reflection to gauge what they look like, their operating behavior, and whether who they are now and how they work matches what they want to be. And reviewing and evaluating their operating archetypes um, provides funders with a structured method to engage in intentional analysis of all operational implications for their work including prioritization of resources and capabilities. Um, and so we have distilled through this, uh, through years of research and this work and conversations with uh, partners around the world, eight distinct operating archetypes, each of which comes with a unique set of characteristics and attributes. Um, and I don't know if I should go through the eight of them or list them, or if we can have a separate conversation on the ones that uh, about the ones that you are particularly interested in um so just let me know what works best in the interest of time yeah probably we can <laughs> go through all of them as much as i'd like to but um uh one one i was interested in and and so these are the, the maybe Maybe you could just give us the names of them. That might that be would helpful. be perfect. And, yeah, then, so and then we could go into detail maybe on a couple. Fantastic. Or, or that maybe works just perfectly. One. <laughs> um, on so time. we have, uh, and these are very descriptive, so our listeners will recognize them right away. Uh, talent agency is one. There's think tank, campaign manager, field builder, venture catalyst, designer, underwriter, and sower. Um, and we have a set of questions to help guide the thinking around them and the analysis of different things that go into them, including uh, uh, reason and value, key capabilities, activities, um, equity, how to center equity, and how to evaluate or where to look for um, in terms of impact. Great. Well, so what, one of them in that list was Venture Catalyst. Um, and Melissa, I understand that you came up with that name um, as, a, as an archetype. Was, maybe you could dive in here and tell us a little bit more about what, what that particular yeah. archetype means. Sure. So, you know, 
when so RPA is currently celebrating its 20th anniversary and when we were founded 20 years ago there was a lot of talk and attention about venture philanthropy and the approaches of venture philanthropy and and thinking of philanthropy you know the way a venture fund investor would etc and there was a lot of there was a lot of creativity and promise around a lot of those ideas and we've seen that build out over the last 20 years to organizations that actually make a point of trying to invest in nonprofits that don't have a proven method or model, that are new, um, that offer an exciting potential opportunity that somebody needs to take the first bet on just like a VC firm at the angel investing stage might, right? Mm. Um, And that is willing to accept just like an angel investor or an early stage VC firm would, that a lot of these bets are not going to go well. In fact, we would say to people who say that they want to do venture, be a venture catalyst in philanthropy, if 100% of your grants are successful, you're probably not really on the edge of innovation. You're probably not really taking very much risk. So we see a couple of examples in the U.S., Um, There's an organization called Unorthodox Philanthropy based in the Bay Area, developed by the founder of a very successful um, uh, PE fund, uh, um, and it has an open application process for organizations around the world that do work in any number of different areas. Recently, for example, they gave um, a, a very significant fund, a grant to a group called Landessa, which is um, an, a fascinating organization uh, initially based in Latin America that works with indigenous and poor communities to help them get land rights. And that's a high stakes, complicated process that doesn't always work, right, because you're tangling with a lot of complicated factors. But it's an example of taking a bet on something that could really reshape how we think about ways to support poor people. Right. That's that's super interesting. Um, We are almost. You know, if I may, I oh sorry. No, no, Oko, jump in, jump in. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to maybe provide an additional example. I think the venture. Catalyst is such a powerful um, archetype. Um, you know, the uh, Libra Foundation um, uh, launched the Democracy Frontlines Fund uh, in uh, right after the murder of George Floyd um, and has attracted other funders, many partners, including MacArthur Foundation, Rockefeller Brothers Fund, Hewlett Foundation. And what they do is uh, grant making to Black-led groups uh, without red tape. And they, they have a brain trust that sort of works with the groups, uh, but it's a flexible investment with no red tape in grassroots organizations that work on racial just, justice issues, including fair elections, defunding prisons and police, etc. So that's another powerful example of a uh, sort of uh, investing in early and uh, sometimes unknown organizations to do really powerful work in the badly needed area. That's great. Well, we are at the end here. I wanted to ask each of you if you are optimistic about the future of philanthropy. Could you uh, give me a very quick answer to that question? And then um, 
that we can, we'll have to wrap up for today, but um, I sure. wish we had another half hour, but. My quick answer is yes. The existence of this hugely successful podcast about philanthropy is an example of how much more attention and thought is going into philanthropy, and that's really transforming our world. Um, my answer, unsurprisingly, perhaps, is also yes. I'm highly optimistic about philanthropy. I'm highly optimistic about the fact that all of us uh, as a sector, or most of us as a sector, are moving away from default thinking um, and looking for new approaches and new ways of creating impact and about the young generation that's coming into philanthropy and bringing different experiences and perspectives. Well, that's great. It's good to end on an optimistic note. <laughs> Uh, thank you both so much um, for joining today and, and, and sharing your views on the state of philanthropy. Thank you, Abby. A pleasure. Thank you very uh, much. Yeah, thank you. So to our listeners, um, I just wanted to remind you to join Barron's Live again on Monday when Barron's Senior Managing Editor Lauren Rublin and Deputy Editor Ben Levison will be discussing the outlook for financial markets, industry sectors, and individual stocks. Thanks, everybody. Stay safe and healthy. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.